and stories and hear, hear your thoughts about what I just said. I know some of you have broad questions, but I was hoping maybe we could start by doing questions related to Dr. Kinghorn's talk and then pivot when we've exhausted those to kind of broader questions. So does anyone want to kick us off? I could talk loud if it's okay with you all and they can hear. Yeah, I could just yeah. reframe the question, especially for uh, very hard. Sure, that's fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So I love the question of like what's needed right now for the journey, but I also know that there's been a lot of times in a lot of just different situations for probably everyone where you don't know what's needed. So I guess what would you say in that situation where it's kind of like, I don't know what's needed right now? So yeah, yeah. It's not like there's no real like. Do I need medicine? I don't know. Do I need to get out of this or get into this or do, like? That's where there's not an answer. Yeah, exactly. That's such an important question, and that's where the getting help is really important. So like, so you might know, like, it, um, in, in times of my life when I've been like feeling, when I've been depressed, like I haven't known like what's needed, and so seeing a, a therapist has been incredibly helpful because that person has training and also just an ability to stand apart from my own life and experience and to say, like, hey, why don't you, like, think about it in this way? And all of a sudden things begin to get more clear. So I think that's where, um, that question what's needed for the journey is not meant as an individual question. It's meant as a question that we can discern together. So like a therapist and a, and a client can discern, or a pastor and a, and a church member can discern, or friends can discern together. But I think um, that, of course we don't know what's needed because if we knew it was needed we'd already have like figured things out you know well before so that's where getting counsel not keeping things alone or inside is really important and i would just say since that kind of talks about can i say a little bit about shame that um yeah. you guys are probably already uh, i'll stand back up so i can um, shame is uh something that i I don't think I really thought much about for a lot of years, even as a psychiatrist, uh, but I certainly felt shame. Like I know I have this like deep personal relationship with shame, but one of the things that, one of the ways that, that um, people like Brene Brown, but also my friend Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist who writes really beautifully about shame as a Christian psychiatrist, talks about is that shame is this natural emotion that, um, that basically corresponds to an assumption, whether we think it to ourselves or not, that, that like I am not blank enough. And that blank is whatever it is that you take to be necessary for belonging to whatever community you really want or need to be a part of. And so like in the circles I run in, it can be I'm not smart enough, or I'm not well-read enough, or I'm not like social enough, or I'm not athletic enough, or I'm not, conservative enough, or I'm not progressive enough, or like, you know, there's lots of ways that could show up on college campuses. And that if, if only people, if other people re recognize that I'm not blank enough, then I'll be ostracized from this community. I'll be all alone and cut off. And that, um, that's a really powerful emotion because it, because what happens with shame is that we naturally, there's a, there's a natural bodily posture of shame, and it's like to sink into ourselves and look down, not make eye contact. And, uh, and the, the response to shame is often to like cut ourselves off from other people. So again, like if I really believe that I'm not smart enough to be in this room, 
then why would I do anything other than just hide? And, and yet, then, shame then, because it cuts itself from other people, only perpetuates itself. It's like, like this like cycle that we can get into. And, and other ways that we can deal with shame are things like, um, like just blaming ourselves, it's like just totally owning it. You're right, I'm like, I'm just not smart enough, and therefore I just should drop out or I shouldn't be here. Or we can um, displace it onto other people in, in ways that can't, are not healthy. Or we can just like numb that experience in whatever way we can. So I think a lot of a lot of like alcohol and substance use and other kinds of um, pleasure-seeking things that college students do often has a lot to do with shame, and not just college students, like human beings. So I think to be just aware of shame and how it operates, and how it operates especially in educational settings, is really important. And then to be able to name it and to and, and that's where I think the the truth of that we're known and loved by God is so deeply important, and to be able to, to just, just own that with each other and to talk about it with each other. Um, I don't know exactly what I'm gonna say, but I'll try to spit it out, which is um, I have frustration with Christianity, and I love everybody here. We're pretty waspy AF, and um, general level and uh, there's tons of cultural norms that go with that um, and I feel like there is like on the shame conversation specifically uh, I don't know what to do about it but I think Christianity creates a lot of cultural norms I think those feelings of I'm not good enough come from this thing that we absorb just being on a college campus on a highly educated, successful campus. You just absorb, this is what I should be like. Uh, and so, how do you speak to Christianity uh, as it's practiced very practically in the church? Or, yeah, I mean, I'm like an offender. Like, I put on a sport coat tonight. Dude, you look so even nice. Even I'm hot up here, you know, to like, yeah. Because, you know, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think that's right. I think there's all sorts of ways in which we um, tell each other that if you don't look a certain way or act a certain way or you know, or say certain kinds of things in a small group that like you're fundamentally don't measure up and don't belong. And, and I, I, you know, I don't think there's an easy way out of that except just to be really aware of it and to try to do things that are that cut against that. So even you're just saying that now, it was really helpful, I think, to be able to, to name that because it's, it's toxic and not, not good. Yeah. Uh, to follow up on that, um, I was curious if you could speak to um, specifically, I mean, not everyone here goes to our church, but a lot of people do. There's some of you have been in a class we've been doing studying Reformed theology. So that specifically, um, when you said shame, I was just thinking about uh, what, what would you say to the church to be thinking theologically as members of a church that um, some folks encounter Reformed theology and find the idea of depravity very freeing. Like to say, I'm not okay, that actually helps. And then there's also the other side of that, which is that that can be incredibly oppressive in how it's um, perceived or communicated yeah. and relate to shame. So since you go to a Presbyterian church and you teach at a divinity school, I'd love for you to talk just about how do we talk about, you and I talked very briefly about this before, how do you talk about if you have a theology of sin, but you don't want to create a community that's built around shame? How do you thread that needle? Yeah. 
Yeah, good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, certainly ref- one, one principle of Reformed theology is that God's um, justice is indissociable from God's goodness. And so there's a way in which the, the awareness of our sin is always also an awareness of a God who has made it possible for that sin not to be the last word in our lives. So there's never a time in which like any theology would like leave us in a place of sin and then just leave us there as if there as if as if God is not already like before us and apart from us and with us like come to us and um, before and behind made it possible for us to uh, for for that not to be the center of our story. That's one thing I'd say is that sin never has the last word. Um, I also, this is, um, I hope this is helpful, but I've tried to think about like, what would it mean to think uh, biblically about sin? And what, what images does the Bible use for sin? And, and I think, um, I'm happy to be challenged on this, maybe a little bit simplistic, but I can think of at least four images that scripture uses for sin. And I think we sometimes get a little bit off if we use only one of these images, which we tend to do. Um, so one is that sin is described as a power. You see this in Genesis, and you also certainly see it in Romans and in Paul's writings. Like, uh, and like this idea of sin as a, a power crouching at your, at your door waiting to devour you. And if we think of sin as a power, then what kind of response would be needed to, having, to being oppressed or possessed by a power? Like what, what would we need? Freedom, yeah, liberation, and so the so if we if we think of sin as a as a power, then the model of like salvation would be liberation. Um, another way of thinking about sin is as a kind of transgression. That's the one that like Western Christians tend to emphasize more than any others, and that is something that Scripture witnesses to. You know that, uh, and so in that case, what we need is um, if if sin is a matter of transgression of God's law, then what we need is forgiveness. And, uh, and restitution, and, and that's, that's, that's really powerful. Another image for sin in scripture is that of like, just separation, like relational separation um, from God or from others. And so if that's the way we think about sin, then what we need, what we need is like reconnection and restoration of relationship. And another way that scripture talks about sin is that is a, like a wound that needs to be healed. And so if, if sin is wound, then what we need is healing. And so, so when I think about like sin, I try to think not, not just about like sin is something that I've done wrong. That would be like a transgression model. It, it, it is that, it can be that. But sin, sin also is like the way in which I find myself like um, captured by powers that, are, that, that I, I don't feel like I have freedom from. And therefore I need liberation or I'm, or I'm uh, just separated. I feel disconnected and I need to be reconnected and to be restored. Or I feel wounded, I feel hurt, and I need healing. And all of those images are images that scripture gives us of both sin and of salvation. And I think that helps to deliver us from this like focused idea of sin is like sin is just like my own wrongness and like it's my fault. And I just think, I think scripture is actually, it, it breathes in a broader set of images and metaphors than we can than than ever works if we reduce it to just one thing. So I hope that's that's, that's good. That's powerful. I love the outside in 
model, just thinking about we live in a really broken world and we have a lot of stress um, going on with whatever's going on inside of us. But um, yeah, from food and yeah. what we see and consume on our phones and what is it's happening. Our, yeah, it, it is awful. I mean, it's it's not right. It's not what was. Yeah. It's not right. That's right. That's right. It's not right. I mean, we can name that. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> um, so Philip knows because we talked about it before. I, I, wrote, I did a little chapter in a book where I told a story that uh, uh, that I'll just briefly recount here because it gets to my own. So I'm from South Carolina. Uh, I am, my, both sides of my family are from South Carolina. And one of the things that I've, um, that I have, uh, that, that's been a pretty hard process for me, but also something that has been really important to me is like learning um, more about my own family's history in South Carolina um, at different stages, including some really horrific uh, times at the end of Reconstruction. And knowing that, um, like my people, like literally my own ancestors, and um, and certainly the people that formed and built the churches that I grew up in as a Southern Baptist, and that and that like formed the kind of world that I was in, um, were just deeply complicit, and often like expressly complicit in 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 really horrific forms of um, racial violence and um, and. Maintain, maintenance of white supremacy, basically. And uh, a story that I tell in this chapter is my own grandfather, who I knew. Most of my ancestors who I have learned about were not people that I knew because they were on death. My grandfather, who I loved, who I loved very much and who uh, was really a really important part of my life, but he um, was a small-town lawyer in Anderson, South Carolina, and he uh, was, had a law practice there, and one of his clients was Clemson University, and in the early 1960s, he was one of the, one of the key um, lawyers for Clemson that was trying to defend Clemson's segregation, white-only um, status, against the lawsuit by Harvey Gantt, who's this incredibly distinguished architect and uh, politician and community leader in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Gantt um, applied to Clemson and uh, had absolutely no reason not to be admitted, except that he was black and Clemson didn't admit black students. And my own grandfather was one of the counsel, was one of the lawyers that tried to keep Kent out. And that, um, I think for, so for me, like that, that, um, like what does it mean for me to both um, love my grandfather and to be like grateful for the kinds of ways that he shaped my life. Like he's a very gentle man, he's very wise. He's somebody who encouraged me in particular ways as a kid that I really value. And that like this tall, gentle man that I knew and loved was also like perpetuating, um, you know, overt racial segregation and white supremacy in the higher education system. And so to me, like that's, that's part of how um, so to me, one thing I think is really important is since most of us in this room are white and come from all over, I'm sure, but like 
just being open to learn about our own history as a, as a country and as a culture and as families and as where we're from is I think really important. And so if that, like, if that involves talking about structural and systemic forms of racism, then I think that that's exactly what, we're, what we should be doing because I think it's just a matter of being honest and open about ourselves and about who we are. And so that's really important. Um, and, and this is not a but, but this is an and, and I think, it's, it's right in those spaces that we are loved. Not in spite of those spaces, but it's right in those spaces that even there we're, we're loved. And, and it's, that, it's that knowledge that God loves us in those spaces that allows us to, I think, be able to be open and truthful to ourselves and to others. So, um, so I'm like still figuring out my own complicity in racism and trying to figure out how to be truthful about my own experience and certainly in my teaching, trying to figure out how to teach in a way that doesn't just perpetuate that where students of color in my classroom and my programs are, are absolutely feel that they belong and know, know that from the syllabus and from every other way. Um, I'm learning a lot of lessons in that, but I think it starts from like an ability, what does it mean to be able to tell the truth? And, and in that space to know that we're loved. And, I, and that's not an answer, it's just where I am right now. So. Can you unpack a little bit um, praying, asking God to sort of solve or improve mental health, and getting to that line where it's only taking you so far, making a choice toward medication, lamenting that that's the choice, and immediately thinking of one of our children, can you jump into Adderall? Adderall didn't exist 50 years ago, what would they do in the church then? I mean, I think prayer is always a good thing, and you know, and, and praying and lamenting and talk is always a good thing. But I think that that that's that again, it's a question like what's needed right now for the journey. And so I think we can pray, and we can even pray for healing in various sorts. And um, and if in the context of praying for healing, we continue to struggle, maybe that an answer to our prayer is like Adderall or a different medication. You know, there's not. I mean, these are always, always like individual matters of discernment. You know, there's not any blanket answer. But I think that um, I think the idea that there was a there's a slide that I sometimes show when I when I've talked about this topic in the past of a a telephone survey of a thousand one Americans done by Lifeway Research, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, about eight years ago, where they they had a they had a set of things that they asked people in this telephone survey, and, and one of the things they asked people was. Um, uh, with Bible study and prayer alone, uh, people can be healed from serious mental illnesses like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. And like, do you agree or disagree with that? And of those who identified in the survey as fundamentalist, born-again, or evangelical Christians, uh, 48% agreed with that statement and slightly over half disagreed. And then of the whole group, like those, that group plus everybody, like 33% agreed with that statement. I'm like, I think Bible study is great. I think prayer is great. But I would never say as a psychiatrist that Bible study and prayer alone are sufficient for, um, in most cases, for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and severe forms of depression. Yeah, I think, I think God has given us wisdom and, and discernment to be able to come alongside each other in a much broader, much broader way than that. So I'd say that, that it's never, a, it's not an either or, but it's a both and. 
And, and I think that's really just a discernment, like having other people around to say, we affirm this. This is something that can be a good thing. I'll remember that. Not in a mysterious yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, I'll quote that, but I'll remember that. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Thanks. Yeah. Yes? Could you speak to uh, the um, human is machine, human is wayfarer? Uh, it, uh, it resonated with me thinking that uh, sometimes being, and I think you said this, speaking in those terms early on is like human is machine sometimes mm-hmm. has been helpful in certain patient interaction. Yeah. I'd be interested to know just your clinical experience. Have you found that patients who kind of may accept treatment kind of un- under that frame of mind mm-hmm. initially, whether that because it decreases shame or it allows for, for just being able to initiate some sort of yeah. therapy medicine, do you find that they that those patients kind of exist in that construct, like in that way of thinking, and find success however they would define that? Or, or, or would you say, and maybe something else, I'm just thinking of these two options, that like there is a process through which we're guiding, people are being guided to thinking about themselves as a, as a wayfarer and then yeah. on a journey. Yeah, I don't, you, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Like, you're, like if it introduced one way, you yeah. can stay in that construct and find true. I, th- I think in the moment of crisis, if some if if, you, if somebody can find freedom in the image of the machine, or in like especially in separating symptoms from the self, great. Yeah. Nope, I'm fine with that. You know, like I, I wouldn't ever want to want to critique that. And and you know, if if um, if somebody can latch on to an image of like a chemical imbalance as a way to um, as a way to say, okay, now I can I can sort of make sense of how taking medication might help. Fine. Like I I am. I want people to live, and I want people to to find a, a place where they can then do more work. And and sometimes, like with um, kids with OCD, for example, like it's like uh, the the dominant treatment approach for that is, and it can be really helpful to have you know a child or adolescent who's having unwanted obsessive thoughts, and to be able to say, "This is your OCD. It's not you. It's your OCD." And now we can work together on your OCD. We're gonna you know come in each week and talk about. And that's that kind of externalization that I think can be really helpful for a time. I think, so I don't, I don't worry about it in the short run, and I think it can be really helpful. What I worry about is that if that becomes the way in which we then learn to understand ourselves as human beings, um, if that lasts over a period of years or decades, where all of a sudden, like, I, I just am a machine that breaks and needs to, then, then I think that, that um, there's something that's lost there. Um, Joseph Davis in that book that I showed, he, he talks about how, how what, one thing that he did notice is that um, in a culture where mental health clinical terms have gotten more common, like anxiety and depression, that when people talked about their in, interior life, they tended to use these kind of flat clinical terms, like I'm anxious or I'm depressed, and not like more, I mean, he says like there's something like 300 words in the English language that can be used to describe qualities of inner states and yet most people used only about six or seven and so like so if we bind to the machine metaphor then like what are we what are we um 
how are we allowing um, how are we allowing ourselves to be shaped and formed as consumers and as um, and as those who like are like are um, just like objects like I, I think the image of the wayfair can, can allow allow us more freedom in the long run but I think in the short run and I mean if any of you right now are like like feeling really anxious and depressed and wondering if you need a medication and the image of broken machine is helpful I'd say great that's wonderful that's where that's exactly where you need to be right now um, and I would want to I would want to I would want to at least ask questions about that in the long run like how are we being shaped to understand ourselves in our in our world I think there's a temporal component where we think of illness and my 16 year old niece just got diagnosed with diabetes or something and she's that's going to be lifelong yeah. and so she's sick she's got an illness she's got diabetes but when you think about mental illness i like the wayfair a lot it's, it seems more temporally confined and like this is what we need now but i wonder if there's your thoughts and vocabulary like mental illness to me i think it sounds like i'm depressed that's that's a hard diagnosis am i am depressed i'm broken for forever for maybe using that machine metaphor like this is just part of me my brain doesn't produce enough yeah i'd say it's not that the machine metaphor is like fundamentally evil it's just that it, it i think it's just too limited i just think i just think we we need to give ourselves more over the long run you know in the short run it might be fine So those who couldn't hear, like what as, as I as I um, as I heard people who might say who might have really settled into the thought of I'm broken, you know God made a broken thing. Um, I mean, it's so hard to give an abstract answer to that because it's a particular person with a particular history of having heard that message, and so I'd want to know like who's told you that? Where'd you hear that? And how, how, from whom did you hear that? How did they know? And, and one, one possibility, I think, would be thinking about, like, how can, how might, first of all, there's, like, first of all, there can be real beauty in broken things. Like, the, you know, the kintsugi, you know, that, that like, you know, it's, it, like, it's, like, incredibly beautiful bowls that, you know, are broken. They, they, they gain beauty from having been broken. And um, that's a hard thing to think of and make sense of. But, but one thing I would want to know is, like, what are the gifts of, of the broken places? And how can, like, that brokenness be a site of, um, again, I don't typically use language of brokenness, but if that's where somebody is, like, how can that brokenness be a site of new, new life and growth? Yeah. There's a wonderful book that um, I'd recommend. That David Finnegan Hosey is a, a former seminary student. He's actually a pastor now in the Richmond area. He has a book called Christ on the Psych Ward. And it's this lovely, like, he, he, he was hospitalized two or three times as a seminary student with bipolar disorder in D.C. And he, um, and he writes just beautifully about that experience. But one of the things he talks about is how, um, like, his, um, his, um, 
sister, I think, when he was hospitalized one time, like he talked about, he just feels like his his like his life is just this like burnt out forest. And she sent him this like drawing of a of a stump that was burnt with one little sprig coming up out of the stump. That like burnt forests always grow. There's always new life in a burnt out forest. Like you know, you know, Pilot Mountain right now is growing. And 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 how come? So just like staying there in that place. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't jump to that reassurance if you're not broken. But like, what what are the places of beauty in life there? It's it's hard to give an abstract answer though. So, yeah. yeah. Um, how do you like navigate, especially like you? I'm sure you interact with many non-believers in your life. So how do you go about answering questions like like for me personally? My only purpose and my worth is defined by my relationship and my walk with the Lord. Because, like, outside of that, my own doing, like, I fail a lot. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of shortcomings. Like, that's on being human. Um, yeah. So how do you go about talking about these things with someone who may not be a believer? So you can't just say, oh, well, you're created and known and loved. Like, that doesn't help them. Yeah. How do you navigate that in here? Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard. It's a good question and a hard question. And I... Again, it's hard to answer in, in the abstract because everybody's individual. But I think in general, one is that the image of the wayfarer works to a degree for anyone. You know, like if, if, even if someone doesn't see themselves on a journey to God, the, the question would be like, well, wh- where are you? Where are you on a journey to? Like, what are you hoping for? And what? Are, and certainly, Christians would affirm that even when people aren't thinking of themselves on a journey to God, they're still they're still longing for something beyond themselves. And and so tapping into that sense of like, what, what kind of journey are you on? So that, that'd be one answer. But I think for me, like I, even as I'm a federal government employee, don't work in, I mean, I don't advertise myself as a Christian psychiatrist. I'm, I'm not hiding it, but it's just not why people come to me. But I will, um, uh, first of all, I'll always try, not always successfully, but I always try to like really um, see every person in front of me as a wayfarer and as someone who God loves deeply. And that affects the way that I relate to them. And, and so, especially with patients who are Christian, but who are depressed, and I'll sometimes, well, first of all, we'll talk a lot about their faith and about how that's important to them. And I try to be really careful about questions of power and not to you know, exploit my power relationship in a, in a way that's not helpful. But sometimes I'll say, um, uh, you know, I know that you can't. I, I know that I, I know that this is not something that you feel right now or see right now. I'm not actually asking you to do that. I'm not even suggesting that it's possible for you to do it. But I want you to know that um, that I believe that right now, God deeply and fully knows and loves you, and that you actually don't have to feel it. That that I just want to say that I believe that it's true. And um, I, I, I do that when, patient, when I know that patients already are Christian. And, and, uh, and sometimes I'll say, like, um, and I know that, like, right now, the, there's, you don't see a clear path forward. There's not a hope. But I, I, I want you to know that I hope for you and with you. I'm not expecting you to do that right now, but I want you to know that. I'm not even asking you to do, like, not an agreement, but just to say, like, I just, I just want to offer that. And I've, I've always found that that, I think, is helpful. Um, but I think it's something that um, I think it's something that, that we can offer with patients that are that are with my patients that are that are not Christians. Um, 
or not not religious at all. Like I just try to be incredibly respectful, and even if they, even if I'm not talking explicitly in those ways, but I still have in mind like this is somebody who God loves so much, and how can I, in some way, like help them to see themselves as someone who's loved, and that looks differently in different ways. Courtney, I think had a question that would be a good follow up to that. Yeah. Put you on the spot, and then yeah. it's actually. 8.32, so maybe Holly um, had a question too, and then if other folks, maybe I'd like to make a comment about our church, and then if other people, folks want to stick around, we'll kind of... Absolutely, yeah, but sounds good. Can you share your question? Yeah, um, I think this week I've just been thinking a lot about Such a great, I just, I just want to like end with that question without, you know, th- answering it. But I think that, yeah, well, first of all, lament is such a gift to us as Christians. I mean, to have, I talk, uh, I, even with my patients, I'll read sometimes Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then the way that, the way that some, some of the lament psalms don't end happily, and sometimes they are just, um, they end with this like, like Psalm 13 is lovely because it, like, he gets to the end. The psalmist never sees God show up, but the psalmist is able to say, um, but I, I, I trust in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So there's this ability to say, like, regardless of what's happening in the present, I can understand myself as, like, part of a covenant people whom God has rescued from Egypt. And I know that God will show up in the future because I'm part of that people that God has claimed. And that's our gift as Christians, to be able to do that. And so that lament of being able to say, like, it's, it's, things are absolutely not as they should be. Uh, where are you, God? You need to show up now because we're dying here. And that's right in Scripture. It's like right there. And, uh, and so I think we can do that. For, for nonbelievers, I think it's, I think it's hard um, because, like, the, you know, there's not, there's not necessarily the kind of, um, the kind of trust of, the, the kind of covenant trust of lament, the, the kind of intimacy of being a part of God's people and God is not there for, I think that's, that's part of it. But I do think that Christians can model, which we often don't do, is like model being able to truthfully talk about brokenness in a way that doesn't immediately have to like solve it because otherwise, like we can, we can model how we can 
we can just be open before God and um, in trust. I wish I had a better answer for for how to share limit with with non Christians. I I don't I don't know except just to just to just to practice it ourselves. And I think that that's the kind of witness. Do you have do you have thoughts about that or how it's worked? Well, even I mean, a minute ago when you were answering the last question, and something you said that like you know like you know Right. And so yes. that made me start thinking, you know, I mean, I maybe could say to an unbelieving client, like, it's not supposed to be this way, and I'm not forcing my faith on them. Yeah. It's just, like, validating, like, this is, this is broken. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. That's right. And, and and sometimes, so I'm a, I'm a, you're, you're a therapist. People would maybe expect this more, but I, people have low expectations of psychiatrists in terms of what they'll say. And so, like, when I'm like, when the patients see me, and I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, like, well, after George Floyd, for example, you know, just to have a space. Um, most of my patients in Durham, Durham VA, are African American, and just to be able to say, like, I, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on recently, and I've just been noticing. Um, what's been happening in Minnesota and are all around us. And I just wonder, I just wonder what you're thinking. And people would like, you know, just like really open up about, of course they've been thinking about things and be like, yeah, and, and that's, and that's absolutely not right. You know, that should not be happening. There's so much, there's like, I mean, there's like evil around us and the ability to say that I think helps to, which is a very different conversation than like, oh, like your depressive symptoms are worse. So we need to, you know, gesture medications because of your depression like actually naming what's the truth of what's happening in the world isn't a replacement for that but it helps to helps to helps to name what's happening i think Yeah. Even language of provider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you have the last question, so I think we're good. Yeah. I don't, I, 
I mainly want to just say I, I, I wish I knew more and I wish I had a better, a clearer sense of what's going on there. I, certainly at the VA, we don't, there's now increasingly research on use of psychedelics in mental health care and, and I, um, we don't, I, don't, I don't prescribe that, we don't have it at the VA and I don't have a lot of upfront close experience. Um, and I, I'm hesitant to, I'm hesitant to like say, to like give a kind of clear sense of this is exactly where I stand. I think for me, it's, it's a lot of not knowing and uh, wanting to know more. I think I, I think I do have, I think part of me wants to hold open a possibility that in a very careful way um, that psychedelics for trauma and other things could possibly be helpful, not as the sole solution uh, or as like anything related to like recreation, but as like a way of helping to decrease barriers for people to have the kind of corrective emotional experiences that are the center of therapeutic change. And, and, and I have reservations about that as I say that. So I just, I just am, I just, I, just, I want to know more. And I don't, and I don't feel like I know enough to be able to kind of say it clearly. So. but also I just I just want to know more yeah yeah it's a really interesting yeah. podcast science versus does an episode on that and I would definitely recommend listening to it it was fascinating about just like, like what's going on synaptically and in different yeah. areas of the brain and stuff like how it could be useful but also it could be misused and it was really science versus you yeah check it out thanks for that thanks for that yeah good thank you all so much I'm really yeah. grateful to be here thank you I just quickly wanted to say, um, my, my wife works in public health, and in public health, people talk about the relationship between public health and medicine as uh, upstream, downstream, and sometimes I like to apply that analogy to mental health and the church, the idea being that uh, public health people are trying to figure out how do we think about our community and how to solve systemic problems and even articulate what it could look like for it to be better. And I think that that is what the church is here to do. So we're here to talk about, um, I was actually, when you use wayfaring, I'm thinking about Pilgrim's Progress and um, in that Bunyan talks about the idea of yonder light and we're pointing each other toward that yonder light as we're going, and that's what the church is for. And then at the same time, recognizing that uh, some people are gonna get injured. <laughs> on that road and um and that is the space where we we need both the public health and the medicine sometimes you need uh to put fluoride in your water to prevent cavities but then sometimes you need dentists to fix cavities sorry <laughs> that's okay she's a big carolina fan so um that relates and so i just wanted to say that uh it, we think the church is an important 
institution in the world that God has created. It is, it is essential. It is not um, going to be replaced by uh, mental health care. And that we as a church very much support the idea of referring people. Um, and Ben and I talk about that a lot, that there are places where we wanna talk about like, how do you understand what it means to be a person who believes in God and wants to follow Jesus? And that is essential to being human. And there is a limit to the fact that when we went to seminary, we learned a lot about that, and we did not learn about how to talk about bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. And, uh, and so if you are dealing with those things, we are interested in helping you. Our church uh, wants to dignify being referred into those spaces, and we even offer financial help for that. So if that is something that you or someone you know needs, uh, then talk to Ben or myself, or one of the elders, but also the servant leaders, uh, which are our deacons, and they are the ones that manage the fund that helps people get access to uh, financial support to get counseling. So just wanted you to know that. Um, you do not have to be a member of the church. Uh, you have to be someone in the orbit of our community because we don't want to give money to you and, and not uh, have the opportunity to be a part of your life. So it's a very low bar. If you hang out with us, then, then you are in the sphere of, of acceptability, whatever that means. Um, I'd love to pray and then I'm sure you probably have to hit the road, but I'm sure some of you will also have some questions so uh, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for Dr. Kinghorn. We pray that you would deliver him safely back to Durham. And uh, we pray that this relationship would grow. We pray for more bonds with uh, Black Knoll Presbyterians. We already have some good bonds between our church and theirs. And uh, so we pray for our cities, our churches to grow in their bonds and that all of that would uh, help us better understand how we can deal with being people who live in this society with the issues that we are facing while trying to faithfully uh, be sanctified, to be more like you, to walk af uh, after you, and, and to uh, become more whole in how you originally designed us. We love you. Amen. Okay. Thank you all. <laughs>